Okay, let's read. Oh, right. <laughs> let's read Psalm 62 then, shall we, together? Uh, one of the difficulties with this psalm is that uh, different translations tend to be quite different. And uh, just for the record, I'm doing it from my NIV study Bible, which is the 1996 version of the NIV. And I think the, the most recent translation is a little bit different. Don't worry, we'll make sense of the psalm one way or another. It's a psalm that has a clear message. It cuts through very, very, uh, very uh, openly, uh, despite any difficulties you might encounter en route. But anyhow, let's read it together. This is my version. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall never be shaken. How long will you assault a man? Would all of you throw him down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall not be shaken. My salvation and my honour depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Low-born men are but a breath. The high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. Right, that's our psalm. Let me just see if I can do a screen share here and make sense of this. Here we go, come on. That's the one. That's a slideshow we want. Right. Can we see that? Yep. Good. I'm taking that as a yes anyhow. Uh, let's just make the screen a little bit bigger here. And there we go. I've called this to start with uh, the only thing that counts. Uh, continue, continue. Okay, fair enough. Because um, last night, as you maybe noticed, was the Champions League final. And uh, Chelsea won, Manchester City lost. And uh, I didn't actually get to see it. I was going to somebody's house to watch it, but it didn't work out in the end. And I only managed to watch the last 10 minutes or so on YouTube. That means I missed the goal. The one goal that made the difference, scored by Kai Havertz in the 42nd minute. And the whole season for those two clubs, the whole story of 20 to 21 came down to this one moment. Because however much they tried in the second half, Manchester City couldn't do anything about it. And by the time I switched on, it was getting pretty desperate. There was one thing they wanted to do. The only thing that counted was getting the ball in the net. And they didn't manage to do that. Now, you know, sorts of amazing things this season. It's not been a bad city for Manchester City by any means. But this was the one thing they wanted and they just could not make it happen. For Sergio Aguero, one of the greatest goal scorers in the club's history, it was tragic because this was his last game for the club. And the only thing he wanted was to go away with the winner's medal. As it was, he had to get a loser's medal instead. And I started by talking about that because Psalm 62 is a psalm that talks about only again and again and again. It's interesting, actually, how many repetitions there are in Psalm 62, considering how often it uses the word only. 
And uh, you'll notice that uh, there are six times when a verse starts with the word only. That doesn't come through in most English translations, but it's that repetition in, in, in what is it, just 12 verses is so obvious. It's, it's clear what the psalm is saying. We are talking about something non-negotiable here. Something that's the only way to look at life, the only way to live your life, the only way to make sense of what's happening around you. And so you've got the word only six times. You've also got the word rock three times. Now I counted up and God as our rock comes up 18 times throughout the book of Psalms. It comes again and again. Lord is my shield, my rock, my deliverer, all that kind of thing. But there is no other Psalm in which it's used more than once. Here you've got the word rock three times. And that again, I think, is saying something about the theme of this all. Son, it's talking about something that's totally reliable, something you can depend on, something you can fix your life around. The third, uh, yeah, the word occurs 18 times in Psalms, only here is it used more than once. The third thing to notice, I think, is this that that funny little phrase, Selah, comes up three times. It comes at the end of verse four, in their hearts they curse, Selah. It comes at the end of verse eight, for God is our refuge, Selah. And then there's another one right at the end. Now, why is that the case? What does Selah mean anyway? The answer is nobody really knows for sure. I remember once asking my, my mother when I was little, what does this word Selah mean in the Psalms? And she says it means, she said, it means stop and think and don't read any more until you thought about it. <laughs> and that, quite honestly, is as good a definition as scholars have been able to come up with through the years. It's a point of pause. And the reason you're pausing is because you want to reflect on what's just been said. That's the closest we can get to it. We don't know more than that. But clearly, from the way it's used in Psalms, it comes at a point where you need people to be thoughtful. You need them to think, have I really understood this? Have I got this in my head? Because there is no point in going on unless I have. So there are three important movements in this Psalm, I guess. Uh, there's verses one to four before the first Selah. Verses 5 to 8, and then it says Selah again, then finally verses 9 to 12. And I think each of those three sections is talking about an only thing. The first four verses, it seems to me, are talking about the only place where your life is safe. We'll have a look at that in a moment. The second section, though, moves on from talking about the, the sort of philosophical argument. Well, where can I find safety? What is life all about? Uh, what do I need to do in order to be safe and secure in life? And it talks about applying it to yourself. Verses five to eight are about the only thing you need to do. And so from saying, my soul finds rest in God alone, uh, he turns around to say, find rest, O oh, oh my soul, in God alone, in verse 5. Turns around and talks to himself and says, look, if you really believe this stuff, apply it, live it out, and here's how you do it. So verses 5 to 8 are about the only thing you need to do to apply this stuff to your life. Then verses 9 to 12, well, it seems to me that's about the only way to think successfully. Because those verses look at human beings and other ways of living life. And they said, well, what are the alternatives? Why don't people live this way if it's the only way to live? And it looks at all of the alternatives and say, none of them work. There's only one way to think successfully. So that, it seems to me, is what Psalm 62 is about. And we're going to look at those three sections now for a minute or two. First of all, then, the only place where your life is safe. One of the reasons that English versions are so different from one another is because in Hebrew, this psalm is very terse indeed. You don't, it takes a lot of English words to put 
add the flavor of what's going across in the Hebrew. This guy on the screen staring at you is Robert Alter. He's a Jewish uh, scholar of the Bible um, whose interests, sadly, are only the Old Testament. But uh, amongst Jewish scholars, he's brilliant. He really is. He wrote a book called The Art of Biblical Poetry, which is recommended in Bible colleges all over the world, because although the guy's not a Christian, he's drawn things out of Old Testament stories just by his knowledge of how the Hebrews used to think and write that uh, just adds so much to our understanding of, well, Moses and Joseph and uh, David and some of the stories of the Old Testament. But he's also done a translation of the Psalms, which is very interesting indeed. And the way that he translates verse one of this Psalm is this, only in God is my being quiet. <laughs> and that is literally what the Hebrew words say, no more than that. So, uh, you know, whether we got my soul finds rest in God alone, uh, that's, a, that's a, an attempt to say the same thing in English, but this is what the Hebrew actually says. Only in God is my being quiet. And it seems to me this is what's summing up the message of the psalm. Where is my being quiet? Where can I feel still? When I, where can I feel safe and secure and at rest in life? Because the world is full of restless people who are going nowhere. They're putting lots of energy into all kinds of things, building their career, having fun, whatever. But they're not quiet in their inner being. And only in God is my being quiet quiet. That's what the psalmist wants to say, David, in these first four verses. There's only one place you can go if you want to build a life that's secure, on the rock. And remember the word rock comes up three times. So the verse one says, only in God is my being quiet from him is my rescue. And this word rescue or salvation is going to come up again and again. It's a Hebrew word, Yeshua. And you know whose name that was. <laughs> uh, it's the name of Jesus uh, in, in Hebrew. And Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua comes through this psalm again and again. So for Christians to read it, we can apply all of the things it says about God rescuing us to what we get through the Lord Jesus. Anyway, that's the first verse which sets the kind of uh, theme for what's going to follow. And uh, after verse one, you, you, he expands on that word rescue and uses three uh, words for it. You'll, you'll notice he goes on to say, he alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall never be shaken. So what does this rescue actually mean? Well, it means two more things, he says. First of all, he is my rock. This means sure ground to stand on, something beneath your feet that's not going to let you down. You're not going to slip. You're not going to slide. You're not going to be knocked over easily. You're standing on solid rock. And that's how it's, he's able to be your rescue. But also he's your stronghold, not just beneath your feet, but around you. You have the protection of a, a, a fortress. And this word stronghold in Hebrew really means a high place that nobody can knock you off of. And so God's salvation makes you secure. It's not just something for heaven. It's something that makes your life secure right now. The one who lives the way that God indicates is on solid, solid ground, even if it doesn't always seem that way. So he says, as a result... I shall not be greatly shaken. Well, that's translated in my version here. I shall never be shaken in verse two. But uh, that's not actually right because the word rabach in Hebrew uh, means I won't be shaken much. If I'm shaken a little bit, it won't knock me over. And I think that's, that's probably what's being said here. Because we do get shaken in life, don't we? We have times when we wake up in the morning and we just cannot make sense of what God's doing with our lives. We have times when other people let us down. 
when great Christian heroes turn out to have been living a double life, when uh, oh, all sorts of, of, of problems come into our life that we, we didn't expect, when lots of people close to us die or have accidents or something like that in a short period of time, and we're saying, what is God doing? And the enemy can use that to shake us. But if we are, we are in God being quiet, then we will not be greatly shaken by that. It goes on then to talk about how the shakers work. And this is where the psalm swings around and starts talking about enemies. How long will you assault a man? Would all of you throw him down? Now, the Psalms often talk about our enemies, don't they? And uh, you can understand that David, when he wrote this Psalm, was probably thinking about his physical enemies, because you just have to read the story of David in the Old Testament to work out that he had lots of enemies from King Saul down right through society. And for many years, he was up against foes who would have killed him as soon as look at him. And so physical enemies are very much part of the way he's thinking about things. But, you know, if we want to make sense of the Psalms in a New Testament context, Often we have to think about the fact that we don't have enemies of that sort very much in our own lives. I don't know if you do, painting's a wild and woolly place, but uh, most of us don't. And uh, the enemies we have tend to be spiritual ones. And so you can apply what David says about his physical enemies to those spiritual powers that are at work to tear down our lives. And so these are the things that would try to shake us. And so he talks about how the shakers go to work. And these are the four things I think he says about the shakers. First of all, they don't give up easily. That's why he starts by saying, how long will you assault a man? You have a go again and again and again and again. And sometimes I feel like a leaning wall, a wall that's bulging out where the bricks are just about to give way and the whole wall will collapse or a tottering fence like the one in the picture there. Uh, it just feels as if one more push will knock me over. I'm just hanging on. I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel. I'm, I, I'm at the end of the rope. And why don't you give up? Well, actually, I think the evil one does give up from time to time. Uh, one of the lies he tries to tell us is that there's no way out, that he's just going to keep going and going and going at us until we give up. And remember, the first Corinthians 10 says there's no temptation that's come to you without which God will provide a way of escape. There's always going to be a way out. The devil is never ultimate. Do you remember after Jesus' temptations in the desert? The devil left him for a space. Yeah. And sometimes when the devil's tried his worst, he has to back off. He tries to give us the lie that there's no way out. You're going to give in sooner or later. You might as well give in now and save us all a lot of time. But it's not like that. However, it can feel as if the devil's just going to come back and back and back and back until the tottering fence is destroyed. The second thing to re realize about the shakers is that their only purpose is destruction. These evil powers that uh, have something to do with our lives, they fully intend to topple him from his lofty place, as verse 4, the, uh, 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 and that's the way they operate. Their only plan, their only, only idea is to destroy us. Sometimes things that are evil can look attractive. Sometimes we think we can play about with them without too much damage. But their only plan is destruction. And the only thing we, we, we can do is stay well away from it. Because when you get involved just a little bit in things that you shouldn't be involved in, it just gets worse. And their plan is to destroy your life, to muscle in on you and just turn you into something you were never supposed to be until there is nothing left. Third, their promises are misleading. It goes on uh, to say they take delight in lies. They may seem to be much more attractive than the life you're living at the moment. 
You might feel that uh, you can have a bit of this and a bit of that, but actually you can. Their promises are misleading. And fourth, their appearance is deceptive. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. And one of the, 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 the secrets of, of, of conquering sin in our own lives is to realize that when it looks attractive, it actually isn't. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a hymn uh, that people used to sing that goes like this, break every barrier down, thou lamb of Calvary, show me the awfulness of sin, the thing that grieveth thee. And if we see temptations, not as attractive, enticing options, but as things that want to tear us down and disfigure our lives and stop us being everything that God wants to do, to chain us in instead of winning us out, instead of giving us liberty to, 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 to just bind us in, 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 in knots that we can't get out of. If we can see it that way, then that's a lot of the, 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 the secret of dealing with it properly. Okay, so that's the, the, the first thing he's got to say. And then we reach the second part of the psalm. And this is from verse five onwards. We've done our sila bit. We've meditated on it. We've understood the principle. And now he says, but you do need to live this out in your life. This is a picture of Blondin, the great 19th century uh, tightrope walker, whom I've probably mentioned at Great Parks before now. He started crossing Niagara Falls on a tightrope in the year 1859 and an incredible sense of balance. He became uh, uh, well-known straight away, and he started adding to his act by crossing on stilts, by uh, stopping in the middle of the, the, the wire, cooking an omelet and eating it before he went on to the end, uh, wheeling a wheelbarrow across. He did all kinds of different things, and he made a fortune. One of the most daring things he did, though, was to take his manager, that's the guy on his back there, on a piggyback across Niagara Falls. And he said to his manager, uh, uh, Harry Colcord, before they started up uh, out, uh, look up, Harry. You're no longer Colcord. You are Blondin. Be a part of me, mind, body and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Anybody who's ever had a girl, his girlfriend on the back of the motorbike knows exactly what that means. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go to our death. Well, he got Colcord safely across and uh, nobody died, but only because Colcord was willing to submit his will completely to the will of Blondin, to allow Blondin to do all the judging. And it's one thing to believe that you can be safe in the arms of Blondin or on the back of Blondin. And uh, many people refused to take up that challenge, including Edward VII, which is another story. Colcord did it. And this is what the second part of the psalm is about. Not just knowing it's true in principle, but applying it and doing something about it. So what have we got here? Well, it's almost a repeat of the first bit of the psalm, isn't it? Because you find the same phrases and the same words coming up again. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. Well, again, you get the only my soul in God are you quiet. But the word wait is introduced as well. So it means only my soul, you wait silently for God. And from him is my, well, in verse one, it says rescue, doesn't it? Or salvation. Here it says, from him is my expectation, my hope. Because it's talking now about the practical situation of living life today. And what's your hope for the future? What are you looking for in life? And so this word expectation fits here. Interesting that in Hebrew, this word expectation really means a cord, a string. 
What strings are there attached to your life? What kites are you flying and holding on to the end of your hopes for the future? It's exactly the same word, incidentally, that's used of the cord in Joshua, where Rahab uh, in the city of Jericho is told to put a scarlet cord in her window. And that will be a sign that the Israelites won't destroy her. And so the cord hanging in the window was a symbol of all of Rahab's hopes, that she would be saved, that she would live beyond the destruction of Jericho, that she would have a new future with God's people. And from him, says this verse, is my cord. My expectation is in God. What does that actually mean? Well, again, he uses the same words. My rock, my rescue, my stronghold. All of this is true now, and it's going to continue to be true in the future, uh, because that's the foundation of my hope. And he says, as a result, I shall not be shaken. And you'll notice that this time round, the word greatly has dropped out. <laughs> Why is that? Well, I think it's because when you're looking at your hopes, you're looking at the final analysis. As you go through life, you might be shaken a little bit here and there. But when you look at the end of the, the, the journey, when you've got to the, the completion of it, you're at the finishing line and you look back on the course you've gone through, you find you've not been shaken. Not seriously. Not at all. You're, you've just gone right through to the end. While you're living through it, it might feel quite different. You might feel that the blows and the shaking is coming again and again. You're like a tottering fence. You're like a leaning wall, all that kind of stuff. But at the end, you look back and you say, I was never shaken. I wasn't shaken. He got me right through it. Okay, a few tremors here and there. But looking back on the whole thing, I can just see the faithfulness of God through it all. And so he goes on to say that what this means is that in God is my rescue, my salvation and my honour depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. And he uses some words here he's not used before. My glory, or that's the word that's translated honour in my version. He's my glory. What does that mean? Well, what does glory mean in the Bible? It doesn't necessarily mean something that lots of other people go, oh, about, you know, glory, glory, Tottenham Hotspur, that sort of thing. Glory means weight. It's the Hebrew word for weight. So it's, it's the most weighty and important thing in your life. And your glory is what really makes you important and valuable and worthwhile. Without your glory, you're going nowhere. Your life means nothing. And this verse says, God is my glory. He's the one who gives me weight, gives me importance, gives me purpose, gives me a driving force. He's my rock. Well, it's used the word rock several times before. Now it's the rock of my strength. I've got strength in myself. Okay, God is strong, but I still have to live the Christian life. I have to do things on my own. And God is the rock of my strength. He's the, 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 the secure foundation that means that my strength will never wear out. I'll sometimes feel tired and depressed and as if I can't take any more. I can, though, because the rock of my strength stands firm beneath my feet. And so what little strength I've got is based on the secure foundation of somebody that will never let me down. And God is my shelter. He's somebody who's going to ward off all of the blows that come against me. He, and that's what it means for him to be my rescue. So at the end of this little section of the psalm, he's got some words to say uh, to everybody. <laughs> and he wants to say, listen, people, this is the only way to live your life. Uh, Trust in him at all times, he says in verse eight. Oh, people, pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. What advice is he giving here? First of all, he's saying rely on him. Trust God. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust God to show you the way ahead. 
even when his way seems suicidal, even when his way seems dangerous, even when his, his way doesn't seem to be common sense, trust him. Just go the way he sends you. Do what he tells you and miracles will happen. Do you remember first miracle Jesus ever carried out at Cana in Galilee at that wedding? It happened because his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Rely on him. Trust his judgment. You're sitting on the back of Blondin. Don't try to correct your balance. He knows better than you do. Rely on him. Second thing is be real with him. Pour out your heart to him, it says. I remember speaking about a verse similar to this in Lamentations one day in Sweden. I was at a Bible school called Holsby Brun, and there being the Swedish winter, they had porridge on the table every morning. I can't stand porridge. I know I'm Scottish, but I can't stand porridge. And they used to make a particularly thick Swedish porridge every single day. And there was one morning, I remember, the, the morning I was supposed to be speaking on this verse, when there was a porridge pot on every table, and when the students turned it upside down to pour it on their plates, nothing came out. It was so thick, nothing would happen. And so they had to scrape it out and add lots of milk to it and just make it liquid so you could actually eat some of this stuff. I just stayed well away from it. But anyhow, um, later on that day, I was trying to explain what this verse was about. Pour out your heart to the Lord like water. And I said, ah, that's a clue. It's like water. It's not like Swedish porridge. <laughs> and they got it straight away. You see, when it says pour out your heart, it means let your heart, everything that's, that's in you, be liquid. Don't be sticky with God. Don't hold things back. For some of us, we pour out our hearts like porridge. You know, not very much gets out. Not very much is, 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 is made open to him. But pouring out your heart like water just means let God have the lot. Be real with him. Don't 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 uh, tie yourself up in theological language or what's right to say and what's not right, right to say. Just pray. Your heavenly father knows what you're thinking anyway. Pour out your heart like water. Be real with God. Rely on him. Be real with him. And the third thing is take refuge in him because he repeats the word here and he says, for God is our refuge. Selah. So you can rely on God for everything. You can be real with him however shoddy and second rate you feel and you can take refuge in him from all the blows and the troubles of life because he's there with you to see you through them okay those are the first two sections how about the third one and then we're done the third one is about the only way to think successfully it seems to me because what he does here is he says okay if there are other ways that people live why do they live that way what are these other things and, and what do people trust in instead of god and uh, he has a look at them and says, no, no, they, they won't do. The only way to think successfully is the way I've already indicated. Okay, let's look at that. He starts off by saying, low-born men are but a breath, the high-born are but a lie. Actually, I'm not sure whether he's talking about the difference in ranks in society here. He uses two Hebrew words for man, Adam and Ish. And I'm not sure that the one means low-born and the other means high-born, but... Uh, one way or another, he's saying all human beings are just a breath and a lie. In fact, it's interesting in the message, for some, some reason, they've chosen to talk about men and women <laughs> are a breath and a lie. But it doesn't matter how you divide the human race up, high-born, low-born, when, women, whatever it is. What this whole thing is saying, all human beings are just, first of all, a breath. What's this word? This is the word Hebel. And it's a word that's used a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes. You remember how Ecclesiastes says, uh, 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 meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. 
actually it's it, that's a terrible translation it's just hevel hevel everything is hevel hevel really means uh, moisture vapor like when you blow on the windscreen of 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 the back seat of a car or something and then you write something with your finger on it you know what's going to happen it's going to crinkle up and go away straight away it'll be there for a second and it's gone straight away and it's the same word that J James uses in Greek when he says, your life is just a vapour. You make plans for tomorrow, for next week, whatever. But realise, you're just like a breath. You're only a breath. And he says, we're also only a lie. Because when we take importance for ourselves, when we try to feel that we're going to be here forever, when we make plans as if we're the most important person in the universe, we may project a lot of confidence, but it's actually all a lie. Human importance is nothing very much. A time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies with the opening day. And we're not here for very long. If we pretend to be important, we're just a breath and a lie. In fact, he says, we're actually even less. Because he says, low-born men are but a breath, high-born but a lie. If we're on a balance, they're nothing. Together, they're only a breath. It's less than a breath. And uh, that's our importance in the massive scheme of things. If we put too much importance on ourselves, then we've got the whole picture wrong and we're never going to understand life properly. And so he goes on to say, OK, if this is true, what do you have to avoid? And he mentions just one or two things. There are lots of other things you could build your life around. But he talks about oppression. You can build your life about keeping about keeping other people in their place, bullying them keeping them down so that you can rise up. And that's what this, this word is really talking about. Don't rely on it, he says. Don't rely on your ability to scramble to the top of the heap, to push everybody else down, to be the, the, the number one voice in your little world. Oppression doesn't work. Um, do not trust an extortion. Well, it's translated extortion in my version, but that's what it means. Anything that to, to put yourself ahead of other people and tries to manipulate them to get what you want. Manipulation just doesn't work in the end. He says also, there's theft, robbery. Don't cherish hopes from that. Don't take pride in stolen goods, it says in my translation. In other words, don't, don't try to gain things that you shouldn't have and build your life around grabbing as much as you can get for yourself. That's theft. And don't cherish hopes from that. He says there's a third thing as well, which is wealth. Now, there's nothing wrong with wealth and your wealth may grow. But the problem is the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money that's the root of all evil, but the love of money is. And if your riches increase, the problem is you might set your heart on them. So he says here, though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Don't covet wealth. So many people, even in the Christian world, build their, their, their whole life around how much they can get for themselves. I read a story just this week um, about uh, a guy in America who's lost his license to be a small time arms dealer uh, uh, because he's, he was selling one or two uh, armaments that he didn't notify the authorities about and so on. And so he lost his license. And this is a great plague in America at the moment where there are so many mass killings going around. There are lots of people selling guns who are, are fairly unregulated. But what interested me about this guy was the fact that the man in con concerned was a youth pastor <laughs> in New Mexico. And he's now the senior pastor in another church in another state. So I did a little bit of a search for him on the internet. And uh, uh, he's, he's, he's actually 
um, made a lot of money from his, his guns business. And when I saw his house in New Mexico, which is now sold, so it was there on the estate agent's window, my jaw just dropped. I mean, I've known princesses who've lived in, 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 in poorer houses than that. And this guy clearly, uh, on the side of his, his, his Christian work in the church, which was, 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 was pretty good as far as I can see, was building an empire for himself. I don't know how much money he put into his guns business, but clearly the money he was making was just extortionate. Now, I can't judge that man because I don't know him, but I suspect strongly that wealth plays a larger part in his life than it really should. And it's certainly possible for Christians, isn't it? That we start coveting things we didn't covet five, ten years ago because our wealth is increasing and we see the benefits they bring and we just want more of it. So the, David says, don't rely on oppression to build your life around. Don't rely on theft of taking things that don't belong to you. Don't rely on your wealth just growing naturally. And he says, the important thing is to remember right at the end of this whole thing, two things. And he says, one thing God has spoken Two things have I heard. That's a, a phrase that's often used in Psalms and Proverbs, isn't it, to say, well, here's one thing. Oh, no, there's another. Here it is as well. It's like the Spanish Inquisition in Monty Python, if that means anything to you. But, uh, you know, you add in another thing and you say, oh, they're equally important. One thing, no two things. Here we go. Power belongs to God. That's the first thing. It's ridiculous to spend your life trying to manipulate the system, to get things for yourself, to, to strain against the, the bounds of your life to get what you're not supposed to have, when actually, in the end, all power belongs to God anyway. But that's only one thing. What's the second thing? Mercy belongs to him too. It says in my version, you, O God, are strong, and you, O Lord, are loving. And that word loving, ah, it's a weak word in English. The Hebrew word that's used here, hesed, means God's covenant faithfulness. Uh, a God who will never let you down. A God who always wants the best for his people. A God who is merciful. And who, even when you are unfaithful to him, will not. It's what Paul speaks about. You remember when he, he's writing to Timothy and he says, if we do this, he'll do that. If we'll do that, he'll do that. He'll do that. And he ends a little hymn by saying, if we are unfaithful, and logically you expect him to say, he'll be unfaithful too. But that's not what Paul says. He says, if we are unfaithful to him, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That's what God's mercy is all about. A God who has us secure and will not let us go because he cares for us that much. So God is not just the awesome God of power who controls the universe. He's also the God of mercy who wants the very best for our lives. It's the only way to go. <laughs> That's Psalm 62. Back to Ashley, I guess. Amen. Thank you, John. Let's uh, just draw our time to a close and uh, just allow God's, uh, God to speak through uh, his message this evening. Father, we thank you then that we've been able to look through this uh, challenging psalm. Father, if we were able to have it expounded to us, uh, Lord, we ask that we will uh, meditate on it or that we will apply it to our lives. Father, help us to be uh, real uh, with you. Help us to rely uh, on you. And Father, help us to take refuge uh, in you, our God, and our salvation. Thank you for John and for Anthea being with us uh, again today. Thank you for speaking so clearly through John. And we ask that you will uh, bless, uh, bless them both as they go off uh, into this week. Lord, as we 
uh, look to a week ahead. Father, we pray that we will find an opportunity to serve you uh, in whatever those uh, those opportunities may be. But Father, thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.